We're talking all about something that I've covered before on the podcast. However, it deserves more than one conversation because it is such a big topic. And that is hormonal birth control. Now, chances are, if you're like me, your story with oral contraceptives might have gone something like this. So for me, I was prescribed oral contraceptives to help control my acne, help with painful and irregular periods, and also help with heavy bleeding. Now, this was years before needing the pill for obvious reasons, birth control. And yet, it's something that I've stayed on for about 20 years. And the reason for that being that while doctors over that 20-year period have mentioned things like, doctors are very good about talking about the side effects of hormonal birth control as it relates to your increased risk of cardiovascular events, whether this is stroke or heart attack or anything else related to the cardiovascular system. And they're also quite good at mentioning an increased risk of breast cancer associated with pill use. What doctors aren't good at mentioning is the rest of the ways that the pill affects your body. And so today's episode is drawing largely from the rest of the package insert that doctors may not be sharing with you. And this felt, this is information that is vital, need to know information. This episode is hating on the pill. Um, however, it's hating on the pill from my own personal experience with discontinuing the pill and what happened afterwards. And I think it's so important that we as women know all of the possible implications and all of the possible side effects and all of the ways that this small teeny tiny pill that we take every day is in fact affecting our long-term health. And so this is my story. Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandy Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. During today's episode, when I make reference to a 170% increase, and uh, there's another one I think I mentioned 120% increase in uh, a few different types of contraceptives that were looked at in a particular study, please know that I misspoke there. It's actually a 70% increase over the control or the benchmark group. Um, in those cases, it was, this is just so funny to me that um, the control is not non-users of the pill. The control is actually a group of women who are on hormonal birth control. It just happens to be a combined oral contraceptive with ethinoestradiol and levonorgestrel. It's hilarious that, uh, and when I say hilarious, I mean very much, that very much sarcastically that that is the control group in these studies. But anyways, when we get into the world of statistics, there is essentially what I should have said is a 1.7 times higher risk for the people in the one group where I say 170% or 70% increased risk uh, for the women in that group of uh, having the uh, insulin resistance, because in this case, that's what we're talking about. And then in the other case where I said 120%, that's a 20% increase over the benchmark, which again, in this case is the levonorgestrel group. Um, so I might have made that um, error a couple of other places when I was recording this. And again, it's just, so it's a 20% increase over the control group. Um, it does not mean that there was 174% risk of the women, it means there was a 74% increase over the control group. So um, also, I mentioned at the end of this episode that there is a link in today's show notes for signing up for Rain Organica's course on fertility awareness for confident contraception. That link will be added later. I am just not quite ready to um, add the sales page or make the turn the sales page live. So that will be added um, 
at a later date, the announcement will be made here on the podcast and of course to newsletter subscribers as well. So if you're subscribed to Rain Organica, you're in the know before everyone else. Without further ado, I really want to share today's episode because I feel it it could possibly help you. And ultimately, that's why I do this podcast anyways, and just want to share my own experience in the hopes that it will help someone else. Thanks so much for being here, and let's get into today's episode. My great-grandmother lived to 93. And it was only during the last few months of her life that she needed a person to assist her with things like getting up and down from chairs. And also during the last few years, sorry, during the last few months of her life that she began exhibiting any signs of dementia. Three of her sisters enjoyed a long, healthy life as well. And one of those sisters reached 100 and was still quite spry and with it. I secretly reveled in this knowledge, treating it as kind of a security blanket for myself. Like it was some sort of guarantee that I too would enjoy a long life and be very healthy even into old age. I'd used their longevity to lull me into this sense of complacency about my own health, allowing myself to believe that regardless of what I did to my body, I'd still reap the benefits of having their genes. It was only after some really deep soul searching over the past few years that I awoke to reality. These women in their 80s and 90s had none of the health problems that I was having in my 30s. And when I finally let that realization sink in, the next question was, what am I doing wrong and how do I fix it? Now, if we were to consider that question of nature versus nurture, here's what I had going for me in the nature category. I had great genes, at least from one side of the family. And then here's what I had going against me in that nurture column. I was exposed to secondhand smoke in utero and through the age of 14 or so at home. I was delivered by cesarean section rather than a vaginal delivery. I wasn't breastfed. I wasn't raised on or sorry, I was raised on some hybrid of the standard American diet. So little Debbie cakes and Coca-Cola and Sunbeam white bread were all staples of that diet. I was hospitalized around the age of eight or nine and had an IV drip for a few days. And in case you're wondering why that matters, IV infusion sets, so this is the line that goes from the IV bag down to the needle or the cannula is the technical term for it, that goes into the patient Those lines are often lined with DEHP, which is a phthalate that's so harmful to health that it's been banned from use in children's toys and in IV bags and infusion sets in the EU. DEHP in particular, out of all of the phthalates, is one of the ones that correlates with anomalies with development during puberty in girls. It has an increased risk of allergies and asthma associated with it. So it correlates with an increased risk of allergies and asthma. And it also correlates with increased insulin resistance among other health concerns. So what that means is that as your exposure levels or as your blood level concentrations of DEHP go up, your risk for all of those things just mentioned also increases. There's a link in today's show note for a previous episode that goes a bit deeper into endocrine disruptors and particularly phthalates. I was also raised in the 80s before fear of phthalates and endocrine disrupting chemicals in children's toys and bottles and teethers was even considered. I went on oral antibiotics multiple times in my teens for acne. I started hormonal birth control in my teens at age of 15 or 16 for acne. And in addition to all that, I started the course of Accutane. This is just a short list of the poor environmental factors, some of these within my control and some not within my control, that my body was exposed to before the age of 25. While I stopped taking Accutane because of the side effects that I was experiencing and came to my senses about antibiotics, I kept right on taking those hormonal birth control pills. And I honestly don't remember whether the OCPs helped a ton with acne, but what it definitely helped with was pain during my periods 
it helped with relieving those heavy periods, and it also helped with symptoms of PMS. Um, and, uh, and additionally, when you're on the pill, your periods are predictable. And at least for me as a control freak type A person, that was, that was really nice to have predictable periods. And I realized that control is not a sufficient, um, like just because I have control of a situation or I'm able to control a situation, that's not a, um, what is the word I'm looking for? That's not a fair value item when we're talking about something as vital as health. In other words, that's not an equal exchange. Just being able to predict when my periods are going to happen um, is in no way equivalent to my overall health. So let's fast forward to my mid-20s. I had my first real health crisis in adulthood. In the spring of 2012, I started feeling just absolutely terrible. I had joint pain, extreme fatigue, and crippling anxiety. And for anyone out there who deals with anxiety, my hat is off to you because for me, this was the first time I'd ever experienced it. And uh, I can just speak to how horrible my own um, very brief time with dealing with anxiety was. It was absolutely horrible. Now, my doctor had a great doctor back then. She ran blood tests and the results were normal. So she recommended that I go on a gluten-free diet and just see if that helped relieve some of the symptoms. Now, that gluten-free diet helped, but it did not resolve the symptoms. So she ran more blood tests and recommended that I stop birth control And while we were figuring out what's going on. Because she was actually, she was one of the doctors who um, was, she quite, often when I went in for an appointment, commented that she'd like to see me discontinue birth control. However, what was lacking in that conversation was the why. This is where I feel like we're so almost left in the dark is we'll have these doctors. So we have, we have the doctors, of course, that are prescribing the oral contraceptives or the hormonal IUDs or the hormonal implants, whatever it may be, the hormonal birth control. And then we have these other doctors who will offhand mention that they'd really like to see us come off the pill or off that hormonal birth control in order to improve our health. However, what they won't, what oftentimes they're not going into is why, like what they're seeing on the blood test, what are the indicators on the blood test, or what are the symptoms that we're presenting with that make them concerned about our pill use. And this is where I think, um, I, I know for myself, I mean, I read, I'm one of those crazy people that actually reads the package insert. I'd read the package insert multiple times. However, the way that it's presented in the package insert, oftentimes, it's not enough to make you stop and go, huh, now that's interesting. Maybe I shouldn't be taking this pill. Or, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's why all of a sudden I have these issues with gallbladder problems. So it's things like that, that it would be so helpful if these doctors just took the extra like 30 seconds, one minute, two minutes to say, hey, you know, because your C-reactive protein is high, because you're starting to exhibit symptoms of gallbladder sludge and symptoms associated with gallbladder disease, I really feel like you need to come off the pill because it is associated with a higher incidence of having gallbladder disease and also of having elevated levels of C-reactive protein. You know, how long did that take to say? Not very long, right? So, Anyways, back over to what happened in my mid-20s. So this particular doctor, while she, you know, said on more than one occasion that she'd like to see me come off the pill, didn't go into the why behind it. And I need a why. So regardless, this was my why. All of a sudden, I felt horrible and we didn't know why. And so her her recommendation is, okay, let's try you on a gluten-free diet that didn't resolve the symptoms. Next steps, let's take you off birth control, see if that helps. Like we've got to start eliminating things from your from your environment and figure out what is triggering what's going, these symptoms that you're that you're experiencing. So 
I stopped hormonal birth control in my mid-20s. And at that time, I actually needed it for birth control. So what did I do? Well, this was my very first foray into using fertility awareness for birth control. And it lasted, I, I used fertility awareness methods for a few months until we finally discovered that I had Lyme disease. And then upon figuring that out, I went right back on the pill. Now, just a couple of years later, so that was in 2012, and just a couple of years later, I started experiencing symptoms of gallbladder sluggishness, which led to sludge buildup in my gallbladder. Now, chances are that you've likely heard of gallstones, and gallstones are made up of cholesterol, bile salts, and bilirubin. Bile salts and bilirubin are both produced by your liver, and they help to solubilize or emulsify cholesterol so that it can be released into your small intestines when your gallbladder contracts. Now, when your gallbladder is struggling with powerful, to have a powerful enough contraction, or when there's insufficient bile production in your liver, then the contents in your gallbladder begin to thicken. And as those salts and cholesterol build up in the presence of insufficient bile fluid, then one of two things happens. Either they become a thick sludgy fluid that's just really difficult for your gallbladder to sufficiently empty when it contracts, especially if the contractility is impaired, or those bile salts and cholesterol begin to precipitate out of the bile fluid and this causes gallstones. Now, I managed for a couple of years with gall sludge, which for me, it didn't materialize into gallstones, but it still caused a lot of symptoms. And I finally caved to surgery, opting for a lab cholecystectomy in 2017. Um, LAP is short for laparoscopic, and it's typically the entire thing. Laparoscopic cholecystectomy is typically shortened to LAP coli in medical lingo. What was also going on during this time is that I started presenting symptoms of an underactive thyroid, and that took a couple of years to diagnose. It started exhibiting symptoms in 2016, and it wasn't until 2018 before I was diagnosed with an autoimmune thyroid condition. What does all of this have to do with use of hormonal birth control? Well, it turns out that hormonal contraceptives are associated with an increased risk of gallbladder disease. Gallbladder disease itself is any man manifestation of a sluggish gallbladder and is technically defined as gallstones, blockage of the bile duct, infection or inflammation of the gallbladder. In a previous episode, again, it also linked in today's show notes, I talked about a relative risk of three for hormonal contraceptives increasing your risk of developing gallbladder disease and essentially a relative risk of three roughly translated. It is statistics. And so this is a rough translation of what that means. Uh, means that women on oral contraceptives are about three times more likely to develop gallbladder disease than non-users. To expand on this a little more, a paper published in 1986 found that women between the age of 15 and 19 years old were 3.1 times more likely to develop gallbladder disease than women not on the pill. What's interesting is that that likelihood of developing gallbladder disease actually decreased with age. So another paper published in 1984 found that women who had ever used oral contraceptives had a relative risk of 1.2 for presenting with symptomatic gallstones. That risk increased to 1.5 for women who used the pill for 10 to 14 years and increased even more to 1.6 for women who had used the pill for more than 15 years. For women who were current users of the pill, those women had a relative risk for symptomatic gallbladder disease of 1.6. Now, what's interesting is that the conclusion of that paper states, and I quote, we found no substantial increase in the risk of symptomatic gallstones among ever oral contraceptive users, although current and long-term users had somewhat elevated risks. Body mass index remains the strongest predictor of symptomatic gallstones among young women. A study of hormone replacement therapy upon, um, 
among postmenopausal women found that hormone replacement therapy increased the rate of gallbladder disease by 50%. If you were to take a look at a package insert for for any combined oral contraceptive, then chances are you'll find a statement similar to this. And this statement was pulled directly from the orthocycline package insert. And it states, and I quote, earlier studies have reported an increased lifetime relative risk of gallbladder surgery in users of oral contraceptives and estrogens. More recent studies, however, have shown that the relative risk of developing gallbladder disease among oral contraceptive users may be minimal. The recent findings of minimal risk may be related to the use of oral contraceptive formulations containing lower hormonal doses of estrogens and progestins. Now, while it's true that the amount of ethyl estradiol, which is the synthetic estrogen that's used in almost all of the pills that are on the market today, at least here in the US, has decreased from upwards of 35 micrograms per, per pill down to about 10 to 20 micrograms per pill. Most of the ones today are 20 micrograms per pill. I've heard that there is a new one on the market at 10 micrograms per pill. Equally interesting is that several new studies compare the incidence of gallbladder disease not to non-users of oral contraceptives, but to other women using oral contraceptives. So their control group is also on oral contraceptives. So what's different in these studies? Well, Levonorgestrel, which is a second-generation progestin, and in case you're unfamiliar, um, combined oral contraceptives consist of ethyl estradiol. Again, that's the majority. To my knowledge, that is um, the only ones marketed here in the U.S. Um, I believe in some other countries there, it actually, I, I know in some other countries because of listening to podcasts and whatnot, that there's a second estrogen on the um, being used in some combined oral contraceptives. However, here in the States, the thinoestradiol is the synthetic estrogen used in the um, pills marketed here. And then the second piece of that is a progestin, which is a synthetic progesterone. And there are four generations of progestins. Levon levonorgestrel is a second generation progestin and it's it paired with ethinoestradiol is used as the benchmark in several studies that evaluate the risk of gallbladder disease with other generations of progestins. A study published in 2011 found the following. It found that desogestrel, which is a third generation progestin, had a relative risk of 1.05 compared with levonorgestrel. It found that drospirinone, which is a fourth generation progestin, had a relative risk of 1.20. So when I say these, when I say relative risk, um, that means for the desogestrel that had a relative risk of 1.05 compared with levonorgestrel, there's a roughly translated about 105% chance or 5% increased risk that a woman um, taking a combined oral contraceptive with desogestrel will have, will develop gallbladder disease compared to a woman who's taking a combined oral contraceptive containing levonorgestrel. And then the same thing with drospirinone, there's about 120% risk or a 20% increased risk of a woman developing gallbladder disease with that combined oral contraceptive compared to levonorgestrel. For norethinrone, which is a first-generation progestin, um, there was about a 10% increase. And then for norgestrel, which is a first-generation progestin and also ethinodiol diacetate, which is another first-gen um, progestin, and then also norgestimate, which is a third-gen progestin. Those were not statistically different. There was not a statistically significant increase in risk compared with the levonorgestrel formula. In another study that was published in the European Journal of Clinical Pharmacology in 2021, a combined oral contraceptive containing levonorgestrel and ethyl estradiol was again used as the benchmark rather than women who had either never used hormonal birth control or were previous users of hormonal birth control. And that study found that women who used an IUD, so an intrauterine device containing levonorgestrel for at least a year had 174% greater risk 
of requiring gallbladder removal compared with women taking a combined oral contraceptive of levonorgestrel and ethyl estradiol. Meanwhile, women who used Depo-Provera had a 122% greater risk of requiring gallbladder removal compared with women taking a combined oral contraceptive of levonorgestrel and ethyl estradiol. So, next question. If I had my gallbladder removed in 2017, what's the big deal? Why would I need to stop taking oral contraceptives at that point? Well, methanol estradiol is a synthetic estrogen, and just like endogenous estrogens, your liver has to process ethanol estradiol. Estrogen, whether it's natural or synthetic, suppresses the production of bile flow. And when a woman has her natural cycle, estrogen production rises and falls throughout the cycle. There are essentially two estrogen peaks, one near ovulation, and again, one near the mid-luteal phase, which is the second half of your cycle. And so essentially women who are cycling naturally have a break in serum levels of estrogen in their blood. So their liver's not constantly inundated with estrogen to break down, or at least not in the levels that it would be from taking the pill. Now for pill users, you may or may not have a break every three weeks, every three months, or never, depending on whether you take a 21-day pill pack a seasonal pill pack, or you're on continuous use. Plus, ethanoestradiol has a longer half-life in your body compared to estradiol, which is one of the three naturally occurring estrogens. And in case you're wondering about progestin-only contraceptives, they're associated with increased liver enzymes. Pill use is associated with an increased risk of benign liver tumors. And again, that is right there in the package insert. Even after I had my gallbladder removed, my right side continued to hurt. And ultimately, this pain, coupled with my desire to reverse Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which of course is that autoimmune condition that I mentioned, made me decide to quit the pill. Now, one of the other things I would, I would say that when your bile production is impaired anyways, so suppressed either by synthetic or natural estrogens, that you're likely more prone to struggle when you don't have a gallbladder because the gallbladder concentrates that bile fluid and you don't have it there anymore. And so if you have suppression of bile flow post gallbladder surgery, it's almost like it stands the potential of making things worse in terms of being able to break down fats than pre. So anything that you can do to support your liver in the absence of a gallbladder would be beneficial to uh, your liver health. And again, this is me talking disclaimer here. I am not a healthcare practitioner. I am not trained in any healthcare uh, field or profession. The information presented here is solely for educational purposes only and is not intended to treat prevent or diagnose any disease, illness, or health condition. Please consult your own healthcare provider for treatment and diagnosis of any health condition. All right, now let's get back over to the rest of the story. So this is where things get interesting, is when I stopped taking pill. When I discontinued the pill, I developed my first ever urinary tract infection. Yay, what fun. Along with that urinary tract infection, my urine started to smell really weird. In my mind, it smelled like it was being produced by a body in ketoacidosis. Not that I have any idea what ketoacidosis actually smells like. But what I was noticing is my urine smelled sickeningly sweet. It had a fruity smell and it had a hint of acetone. So I don't know, like maybe I could use that to describe a really gross wine um, with all of these, oh yes, a hint of acetone and a fermented pear. I told four different doctors and mid-levels along with one naturopath. So that's five different healthcare practitioners about this during the year-long quest to resolve this condition. 
I mentioned I felt like I had a sugar metabolism problem and I was pretty much ignored because the response was, your H1C levels, your H1AC levels are normal. Your fasting glucose looks good. My question was, okay then, what's causing this UTI? To which the response was, can you guess it? Are you wiping front to back? Now, what I wanted to tell these doctors and healthcare practitioners is that when a 40-year-old woman shows up to your office with symptoms of a UTI for the first time ever in her life, do not ask her if she's wiping front to back. Now, of course, I couldn't say this without getting fired as a patient. So I had to um, hide the eye roll and ask something like, is there any other test that you can run to see whether my sugar metabolism is normal? And none of these doctors offered to run any other test. What could have been run is a glucose tolerance test, which essentially assesses for insulin resistance. And with a glucose tolerance test, essentially what happens is you drink a really sugary solution. Well, your glucose is tested at baseline. You drink a really sugary solution. And then at intervals, it's typically 30 minutes, perhaps one hour. And then again, at two hours, your glucose is tested to see where levels are. What's really important if you have this test performed is that not just your glucose levels are tested, but also your insulin is tested at each point because it's completely um, possible to have glucose levels fall back in the normal range, but your insulin levels be sky high. So anyways, none of the doctors offered to run a glucose tolerance test. And it was actually just in listening to the PCOS nutritionist podcast that I figured out that glucose tolerance testing was even a thing. Um, anyways, the, a little bit of a sidebar, let's get back over to that story of, um, you know, what, what happened. So essentially, um, I developed my first ever UTI and, over the course of the next year, proceeded to get recurrent UTIs. About six months into it, um, my doctor suggested, my general practitioner suggested that I might have interstitial cystitis. We will have an entire episode that's dedicated to recurrent UTIs and diagnosis of interstitial cystitis. And again, while this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, if you have recurrent UTIs, or um, especially if you've been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, I highly recommend that you check out the link in today's show notes, head over to listen to Ruth Chris, who is a nurse practitioner, who herself was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis and decided that she couldn't live with it. And so she did something about it. Um, she shares her story on Better Health Guy podcast. And um, essentially what happened in her case was her interstitial cystitis was an undiagnosed um, UTI. So it was not being detected by standard urine cultures. Definitely head over to listen to that episode if you're dealing with interstitial cystitis because it could potentially revolutionize your health journey. Um, you, I mean, you will have to work with a health practitioner and they will have to be open to um, listening to the possibility that it might be a UTI, but still it's... Um, it's revolutionary. Now, and again, we'll cover that in a separate episode here. It's too much to try to cover that plus the rest of the story um, associated with sugar metabolism in the rest of today's episode. So um, before clicking over to that episode, here's another critical piece for you. If you have recurrent UTIs, if you've ever been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, or if you experience urinary urgency, High sugar in your urine can provide a breeding ground for undesirable bacteria. Your urethra and your bladder are not sterile, but in fact have probiotics just like your vagina and your gastrointestinal tract. High sugar in your urine and ketoacidosis and ketonuria 
can cause pain with urination and also cause urinary urgency. And then lastly, and this is very important, you can die from a UTI. And again, the disclaimer, I'm not a doctor or licensed healthcare practitioner. All information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only. The fact that you can die from a UTI means you don't want to sit on it. So if you're experiencing those symptoms, like you need to work with a practitioner. So um, again, we'll take a closer look at figuring out the UTI piece in a separate episode. For now, it's important to make the connection between how hormonal birth control impacts your ability to metabolize sugar and how your ability to metabolize sugar is directly linked to your risk of recurrent and more severe UTIs. First off, let's establish a normal versus disrupted sugar metabolism. When you eat carbs, your body breaks it down into glucose and glucose is a primary source of energy for your body's cells. Insulin is required to transport the glucose from your blood into your body cells where it can be used for energy. Insulin resistance is a condition where even when you have enough insulin released in um, quote unquote normal quantities by your pancreas, your body cells can't hear it. And this may be either because they've grown hard of hearing or because insulin's voice isn't loud enough. So insulin may, might be a bit hoarse um, for whatever reason. So your pancreas releases more insulin thinking. If more insulin's talking to the body cells, then maybe they'll hear it. When your body cells become so resistant to insulin's call that they're unable to soak up enough glucose from circulation for normal metabolic function, then your body has a it has to start using fats for fuel. And your circulating levels of fatty acids go, goes up. Fat metabolism leads to the production of ketones, most notably acetoacetate and 3-beta-hydroxybutyrate. Acetone's also made as a third type of ketone, but it's not nearly as abundant as the other two ketones. Now, to be fair, um, the doctors that I saw over this year-long time period did their due diligence to order urinalysis for testing both ketones and glucose in my urine. And both of those were negative. It's reported as negative on the, on the readout, even though it's tested in milligrams per deciliter of blood, or sorry, of urine, with no indication of what the minimum reporting value is. So in their minds, I'm sure they were happy with their level of testing and thought that they were, you know, doing their due diligence. And again, they also, you know, I had one of the docs order an H1A1C. Um, and yet my urine smelled differently than it had just a month before when I was still on hormonal birth control. Like it was, it was almost like a light switch. When I stopped taking hormonal birth control, there was a pretty rapid shift in how, um, in just the quality of my urine. So none of these doctors or healthcare practitioners ran a glucose tolerance, glucose tolerance test, also known as a GTT or perhaps an oral glucose tolerance test. So OGTT. And that might have revealed that I was in fact showing signs of insulin resistance. Um, now, I still to this date have not had a glucose tolerance test run. However, the following symptoms were proof enough to me that I was either suddenly insulin resistant after discontinuing oral contraceptive pills or that my body wasn't producing enough insulin, one or the other. So I had acetone smelling urine, occasionally my breath would smell sweet and kind of acetone-like, and that's kind of a signature for um, a diabetic kind of in ketoacidosis. I'd had, I had urinary urgency and painful urination, especially at night and also in the morning. I had weight gain, loss of appetite, and because I was charting my cycles, now for birth control again, I had a cycle that was consistent with PCOS. So PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. I chased the UTI rabbit for over a year after the initial diagnosis before finally figuring out that the UTI alone did not su sufficiently explain my symptoms and why symptoms would occasionally flare even when I was not struggling with a UTI. I'd asked I'd ask doctors about everything from, could it just be that time of the month when either my estrogen or progesterone was peaking or plummeting within my cycle? 
um, like, could that be contributing to the symptoms? Might it be the pH of my urine? Could it somehow be different now that I discontinued oral contraceptive pills? When my weight began to creep up while my appetite plummeted, my suspicion was not that my thyroid was suddenly functioning less optimally than it had been. Instead, it went back to, I really feel like I'm not properly metabolizing sugar. And then I had a, a cycle that was consistent with PCOS. Now, I track my cycle at home using an at-home hormone monitor that provides a quantitative value for various reproductive hormones throughout your cycle. Essentially, how it works is every morning you pee into a cup and then you place a dipstick in the cup, place the dipstick into the monitor after it's soaked up sufficient quantity of urine, and then let the monitor read it. The monitor has an absorbance um, uh, detector in it, perhaps a fluorescence detector also, and it provides a quantitative value for a metabolite of estrogen that is in your urine, luteinizing hormone, you can also get um, the urine wands that will detect a metabolite of progesterone in your urine and then also FSH, so follicular stimulating hormone in your urine. And for this particular cycle, luteinizing hormone was just all over the place. It would peak and then it would trough. My estrogen levels never peaked and progesterone was crazy low. When this pattern repeated itself over and over, Again, it began looking really consistent with a polycystic ovarian syndrome cycle somewhere around day 17. And in PCOS, this is where you have multiple follicles that are developing within your ovaries. However, none of those follicles are ever selected as the dominant follicle. So what this means is that um, your body will attempt to cycle into ovulation or attempt to um, make efforts to ovulate, which is why that luteinizing hormone was pulsing, would peak and then trough, would peak and then trough. But what was happening is those little follicles, because when a dominant follicle is selected, the follicle itself starts producing estrogen. And one of those follicles just wasn't big enough to start producing that estrogen surge to properly feed into that whole feed hormone feedback loop. And so, um, in PCOS, oftentimes women have many kind of false ovulations or false starts at ovulations before true ovulation. And this is what I was seeing in my cycle. One of the primary contributors to PCOS is insulin resistance. I started incorporating dietary and lifestyle changes immediately to begin supporting increased insulin sensitivity. I also researched the heck out of the condition to figure out what supplements, if any, might help why that little bit extra thyroid hormone seemed to help, and also why was I struggling with this anyways? Even though a couple of people in my family have been diagnosed with diabetes, they were all much older. They were in their late 60s and 70s at the time before their diagnosis. And even though I was brought up on a poor diet, my diet today is decent. I mean, when we're talking diets, there's always room for improvement in diets, but I'm already limiting both grains and highly refined carbs in my diet. What do oral contraceptive pills have to do with insulin resistance? Well, both estrogen and progesterone impact insulin sensitivity, and the synthetic estrogens and progestins in birth control also impact insulin sensitivity. A study way back in 1979 proved that progestins increase insulin resistance. And while some of the progestin generations weren't around back then, the second generation progestin, levonorgestrel, was the worst offender of any of the ones that were tested. And um, essentially, it increased insulin secretion. And so this led to insulin resistance because anytime there's excess insulin being secreted, it is, it's kind of like, um, if you were to think of insulin as noise within your body, then it's kind of like being at a rock concert. And then your body cells are just, they become deaf because there's, you know, there's excess noise circulating around. And so they become deaf or hard of hearing, um, when there's excess insulin present. 
So similarly, ethinoestradiol, which is the type of synthetic estrogen that is used in almost every uh, combined oral contraceptive on the market, at least here in the States, also impairs glucose tolerance, causing reduced insulin sensitivity. So increased, reduced insulin sensitivity is synonymous with increased insulin resistance. Two papers are linked in today's show notes. One is a review paper that includes um, that basically looks at the body of literature that's out there and dis- um, it discusses the possible mechanisms for how synthetic estrogens and progestins impact insulin sensitivity. The second paper linked in today's show notes talks about the insanity of prescribing women with PCOS hormonal birth control. In summary, combined oral contraceptives and progestin-only contraceptives increase insulin resistance and also increase risk of type 2 diabetes even after discontinuing the pill. A study published in 2012 cites an epidemiological study among nearly 8,000 non-obese women from developing countries. It found a relative risk of 2.4, so roughly 240% risk for developing diabetes among women using levonorgestrel implants and women versus women who are using non-hormonal methods of contraception. Another study cited in this article found the odds ratio of developing diabetes among Native Americans, and Native Americans are a population that are already at higher risk of developing diabetes. So this particular study found that um, the odds ratio for Native Americans who were using Depo-Provero was about 3.6 for developing diabetes. So again, about a 360% um, increased risk of developing diabetes versus users. If there's anything, oh, one more note on that. Um, When we're talking about contraindications for using birth control, diabetes is one of the contraindications for using birth control, and it's right there in the package insert. A couple of package inserts are linked in today's show notes just for you to take a look at. Um, You know, sometimes if you're prone to throwing yours away. When you open up a new pill pack, you might not have one lying around, assuming you're on hormonal birth control. Um, So anyways, all right, moving on. If there's anything, I wish I could go back in time and tell my younger self, don't use hormonal birth control and find a natural way instead to prevent pregnancy and to relieve your acne. Instead, I allowed myself to believe Western medicine doctors who offered it as a fix-all for acne, painful periods, heavy periods, irregular periods, and pregnancy prevention. On the other side of of oral contraceptive, uh, on the other side of hormonal contraception use, I wonder how much that pill has impacted my long-term health. Will I develop cardiovascular disease, even though this isn't a concern for women on either side of my family? Will I develop dementia at a young age? Will I have good bone health? Or did the pill destroy that too? Have I predisposed myself to diabetes by taking something that I didn't know would disrupt my sugar metabolism? Here's the thing. I mean, if you're like me, no doctor has ever breathed a word to you about the risk of the pill, aside from increased risks of breast cancer and cardiovascular events. So whether this is, or whether it's likely all three, stroke, heart attack, and deep vein thrombosis. Looking back and knowing what I know now, about the interconnectedness of the body and about how one system doesn't go out of balance with in isolation. I seriously wonder, did I break myself? Did my decades of pill use contribute to my gluten intolerance, autoimmune thyroid condition, Raynaud's syndrome, present concern with insulin resistance, and recurrent UTIs? Was it why I developed gallbladder disease and why my liver hurt so bad? Yes, I hate a period, and I don't want children either, but I also want to live a long and healthy life. And to achieve that, I stopped taking what I should have never started taking. And I started tracking my cycles, 
so that I'm able to avoid pregnancy naturally rather than relying on something that dysregulates my body's proper function. The purpose of today's episode is to share this story with you because I really feel like if more of us were to step up and share our own stories of oral contraceptive use and our suspicions on how they've impacted our health, then less of us would be using pill. If you're a current user of, or, of hormonal birth control or you have friends and family who are using this method of birth control, my sincerest hope is that you share this episode with them. My, And I really hope that by sharing my story, it drives home the why behind why it's so important to really consider whether hormonal birth control is the right choice for you. These synthetic hormones disrupt more than just your reproductive system, and it's more than just your cardiovascular system that is prone to fall victim to the event, to the effects of these endocrine disruptors. Because let's be real, synthetic estrogens and synthetic progesterones that are in the pill are endocrine disruptors. In case you're wondering more about what your options are for contraception, if you were to step away from hormonal birth control, Rain Organica is launching a course in January to explain how it's possible to avoid pregnancy naturally by learning to track your cycles. In this course, I share three different ways to track peaks and valleys in your hormone levels throughout your cycle so that you know when you enter your fertile phase and then also when your fertile phase closes for that cycle so that you're able to either time sex or use barrier methods during your fertile window in order to avoid pregnancy. You're invited to gain early access to the course by signing up now. Simply click the link in today's show notes to discover more. Thank you so much for being here today. So much for listening and sticking all the way through today's episode. Next time on the podcast, I'll be sharing the story. I'll be sharing Allie and Erica's story of how spirituality helps them navigate everyday life and just reduce anxiety levels and um, bring more presence into their day. Until next time, bye.